0: Hello, hello, and welcome again to a Beatles show that we call Things We Said Today. This is a weekly podcast in which we talk about anything about the Beatles, their past, the present, whatever we feel like in the moment. And uh, I'm Ken Michaels. I'm one of the co-hosts of this show. And many of you know me from my other weekly Beatles program, a syndicated show on the Beatles called Every Little Thing. And I'm being joined by some of my regular co-hosts on the show at this time out, first of all. The man who writes for Beatles Examiner, that being Steve Marinucci. Hi, Steve.
1: Hi, Ken. Hello, everyone.
0: And also one of the writers for Beatle Fan, who's been with them since the very beginning of the magazine, that being Al Sussman. Hello, Al. Hi,
2: Ken. Hello there, everybody.
1: Ken, let me say one okay. thing. one quick thing. Uh, yeah. I know we're gonna this will be uh, on way after the fact, but I just want to say Happy John Meets Paul Day, guys.
2: <laughs> Woo! Woo! okay <laughs> okay there we go and yeah. in a, and in advance happy 75th birthday to ringo of course by the time you folks hear this it'll be after the fact but he will all he will be 75 years old
1: that's right, yeah. Yeah. That's
2: right. i will
0: be i will be celebrating tomorrow
2: that's right, right.
0: it's all ringo day yeah and also uh, i'm sorry to say that one of our regulars our resident musicologist alan cozen Unfortunately, he has some health issues to attend to, and he's not able to make our show this time out. So we all wish him well, and we hope he'll be with us on our next show. And uh, we have a special guest with us on the phone. His name is Andrew Grant Jackson. He is the author of a book that came out earlier this year. It's called 1965, The Most Revolutionary Year in Music. And ironically, it's funny that we have Andrew on because... Al has been posting since January 1st this year on Facebook a video of a song that he, the way he explains it, is one of the reasons why 1965 was the greatest year in music. So obviously, Al and Andrew, you are of like minds. And so uh, I'm wondering if, uh, before we talk to Andrew, Al, did you have any idea that Andrew's book was coming out and
2: actually i do because uh uh andrew and i talked at the la fest uh, for beatles fans last october and he mentioned that uh, that he had a new book coming out about 1965 which immediately you know got my uh, the attention of my antenna uh because mm-hmm. for decades uh, as Ken well knows, uh, I've been saying that 1965 is the single greatest year in the history of rock and roll. And on New Year's Day, kind of just sort of uh, very organically, I said, you know what? We're now into the 50th anniversary year. Maybe it's time that I put my uh, two cents where my mouth is and actually begin showing why 1965 is the greatest uh, year in the history of rock and roll. So beginning at, in chronological order, not in any kind of uh, rating, but strictly in chronological order, beginning with Reparata and the Delrons. runs, Whenever a Teenager Cries, uh, I began posting each day a YouTube clip of a song that uh, that I consider to be one of the 365 reasons Why 1965 is the the single greatest year in the history of rock and roll.
0: Okay, so why don't I start by asking the two of you the very basic question of why you feel that way. And I must admit, look, I, I, I love the 60s. I love every part of the 60s. I love the pre Beatles era too. And, uh, you know, for for so many reasons, I could I could probably mention 1964 or 1967 and or any year there and give you a reason why I feel that year was so tremendous. So what is it about that particular year for both of you that stands out why you feel the way you do that? It was the greatest year in 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 pop music. We'll start with you, Andrew.
3: Well, yeah, I'm a huge fan of every year in the 60s too. you know, 66. 67 but you know 68 but i think all those years they're kind of building on the innovations that really kicked into gear in 65 so i wouldn't personally say like yeah i think it's personally what's the best to somebody but i i was just making the case that this was the most revolutionary year because new forms of like lyrics for rock and roll and sounds and genres all really started uh, exploding in that year
0: Mm -hmm.
1: That
3: that later years they built on this, like uh, Psychedelia, you know, Sergeant Pepper, you can trace a lot of the things from there, from, you know, sitar to orchestration and everything back to the, uh, all the groundbreaking things the Beatles and Beach Boys started doing in uh, 65.
0: Okay. And Al, how about you?
2: Uh, Sort of uh, launching off what Andrew was just saying, in 1965, you have the British invasion at really the the first wave of the British invasion at its height. Uh, Andrew, I believe there was a week in June May. or July when uh, when I believe there were eight, I think you would uh, point it out. There were eight songs
3: by May British 8th. acts. I'm looking at my little uh, timeline at the beginning of the book. My little cheat sheet right. here is May 8th. Yes. May 8th. Uh, eight eight British Invasion singles, and and one of them was Australian. I think the only American one was, uh, what was it, Count Me In? (laughs) Ironically titled. Uh,
2: Gary Lewis and the Playboys.
3: Gary Lewis and the Playboys,
2: right. Right. Yeah, exactly. So you have the British Invasion at really uh, high tide, at least in the, the first wave. Then you have this, you have really the, in effect, the invention of folk rock. Uh, in the spring with uh, the release of the Birds cover of Mr. Tambourine Man and then their first album, plus Dylan's move to uh, to electric electric sound. Uh, then you've also got this whole new wave of bands that that were created or whose sound developed in the wake of the Beatles. Uh, the As I said, this whole genera- new generation of of bands that had formed or who had formulated their sound in the wake of the success the initial success in America of the Beatles and the other British bands. Uh, you have the McCoys, you have the Sir Douglas quintet, a group that even though they were from uh, they were from Texas. Kind of fashioned themselves as an English type band, as did the bull Brummels, who were a group from mm-hmm. San Francisco. Uh, so you have that. You have uh, this: the beginning of the golden era of, uh, of as we call it back then, soul music, with uh, Motown uh, beginning. Really, it's it's real in the midst of its golden era. Uh, you have the first. The first real stirrings of stacks, uh, plus uh, uh, so many other uh, artists: uh, Wilson Pickett, James Brown, uh, Fontella Bass, albeit a one-hit wonder, but still a classic record uh, in "Rescue Me." Uh, so things like that, and uh, you also have classic records from the Beach Boys uh, that were setting the stage for the 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 great musical leaps that Brian Wilson be, would be making in 1966 and 67. Uh, so you have all of that, uh, plus a lot more that I'm, uh, that I'm not even really uh, thinking of. It seemed like every week there would be some new, great new record that mm-hmm. you'd be hearing on one of the top 40 radio stations of the day.
3: Mm-hmm. One of the big things, too, that uh, you could throw in there would be a James Brown inventing funk, you know, with Papa's got a mm-hmm. brand new bag that became like the, the, you know, the groundwork for hip hop and all that later to come. Yeah.
1: Can I make a comment? the, the uh, 1965 actually was kind of an American explosion. And part of the reason may have been um something I found um in uh, in reading today that American authorities drastically cut the number of work permits given to UK groups, which um gave people like the beau Brummels and Gary Lewis and the Playboys and a lot of others, you know, a little more uh room to to come out there and, and to and to uh you know uh get popular. Which is really interesting that that they had that the authorities had done that you know i i get I get you know you could kind of speculate the reason for that, but uh whether they were trying to keep the you know the British groups down or whether they were trying to make way for the American groups or whatever but uh that was inter- that, i I don't recall ever hearing that before Did either of you guys ever hear that one before
2: well converse I think Andrew may have touched on that in the book because conversely that uh, that ruling greatly retarded uh, the, the kinks ability think, yeah. to gain, gain much of a foothold in this country.
3: Right, Andrew? Yeah, there was, um, they had all these run-ins when their summer tour, like uh, I, I think he was a representative from the uh, the musicians union started needling Ray Davies, I guess, about his wife. I, off the top of my head, I, I can't remember if she was Lithuanian, but like of Eastern European, and he started saying mm-hmm. that she a communist. And so uh, Ray shoved him or something. Into that So that got them banned. that plus, you know, uh, they were dancing. A couple of the kinks were dancing cheek to cheek on like Hullabaloo oh, <laughs> TV my. show, which freaked out people because they had long hair. And, you know, they kind of they put on a little extra feyness sometimes, you know. So, uh, wow, there was they, there was a. Uh, you know, they, he also they with customs. They had a little bit of run-ins. Or, like, are you a boy or a girl? And he goes something like, "Oh yeah, and that's my sister." You know, they were just really smartasses to everybody, and it kind of got him in some hot water. Hmm. They all, John Gacy, the serial killer, had him over for for drinks. Too, he was like the uh, the local committee. I, oh, I forget it was like the, uh, you know, like not the not the VA, but you know, some sort of local. What do you call those, you know, like just a community group. And he he brought the group over to have drinks, but they got a little creeped out by him. You know, that serial killer who make the paintings of the clowns, uh, John Wayne Gacy. And and, and so they left and they found out later that 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 serial killer had had him over to their house for uh, after show entertainment. Wow. Um, I just
0: wanted to say, first of all, for our listeners, we will be talking about the Beatles pretty soon in this conversation. Uh,
3: you know, just,
0: in case, just in case anybody's wondering, because this is a Beatles show, but I just want to touch upon a couple of things. First of all, something Andrew said in the very beginning. There is a distinction that you can make between what you think is the best year and also what's the most revolutionary. They may not go mm. hand in hand. It all depends upon your musical taste. And um, I wanted to ask all of you something, and I'll ask Steve this first, but because a lot of attention's given right now to 1965 being the groundbreaking year that it was, is it more important, does something like that have more of an impact on us because it was the first time it was groundbreaking? Because you could certainly say, and I can relate this easily to the Beatles, you know, Rubber Soul was probably the first time there was a huge leap creatively in the songwriting um, on, on Beale's albums. And there was always a gradual um, progression going from Please Please Me through Help. But once you got to Rubber Soul, that was that big jump right there. But then you had the biggest climb ever, to me anyway, when they went into Revolver and Sgt. Pepper. So you can compare the initial groundbreaking to what might be considered the strongest as far as groundbreaking and, and innovate, innovation. Does it matter to you Uh, which has the biggest impact the first time or whether or not they, they perfected things and finessed things and even brought it to higher levels later on.
1: I think personally, I think, you know, back then it was the impact of the initial impact that hit everybody the hardest. I mean, going back to 64, it was, you know, the emergence of the Beatles that made the biggest splash, not only, you know with the with the fans but with the media all the stuff that came after was kind of i mean kind of added of course to the you know to the to their aura and added to their you know to their how great they were but the first time the first time really um was what got at everybody and and 65 had so many you know groundbreaking things um i was just watching the other night um on uh direct tv for those of you that have direct tv there's an on demand with brian wilson and just listening even listening to his band and i had just seen the beach boys you know about a week before that but listening to his band do all those old songs with al jardine who's in the who's playing with him it's just astonishing i mean it's really you know because there's so many things he did that year and he and you know, I'm just using Brian Wilson as, ex- as an example. I mean, there were there were so many other things going on, you know, in 65. Um, but 65, 65 kind of added to everything. I mean, it was like, yeah, we had 64, but then you had 65, boom, 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 boom. And it was just one surprise after another. But again, I think the initial impact in 64, you know, was probably the biggest. But for, you know, I think more more now... We look at the we look at the impact later on, but I think it, it, back then, you know, it was really the first time the the full impact of what was going on really wasn't that we didn't really look at it. Um, you know, back then we were just too busy listening to the music and listening, enjoying the transistor radios, and you know, listening to people like Cousin Brucie and 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 uh, uh, Murray the K
2: and everybody else. You know, so I, I, Al, you feel that way? Absolutely. You know, in in retrospect, we can tell that, for instance, you just mentioned Brian Wilson, that the side two of The Beach Boys Today and side two of Summer Days and Summer Nights kind of set the stage for pet sounds. Uh, Dylan's Going Electric and the release of the Birds, Mr. Tambourine uh, Tambourine Man LP, uh, set the stage for. The Love and Spoonful, and the Mamas and Papas, and uh, and all of the of the folk rock acts that would emerge, um, many of them during 1966, things like that. The uh, the frankly side two of Help, of the you know the British Help album, set the stage mm-hmm. for the the musical advances that the Beatles would take on Rubber Soul. So there was a lot of you know, kind of uh, development, you could say, of, of different aspects of the music that would, that would really burst forth in 66 and 67. But, um, uh, you know, I always say that you could put a, uh, you know, in terms of the, of the quality of the music, you could put a postage stamp over 64, 65, 66, maybe even 67, uh, because they're that close. It just, I just have a personal preference for 1965.
0: Mm. Yeah, but getting back to my original question, do you think that because of that groundbreaking year of 65, and hey, let's face it, 64 was groundbreaking too. How do you even differentiate between 64 and 65 when you have the British invasion happening in 64? You, have, you were just talking about Motown. In 65, mm-hmm. Motown was huge in 64. It was the big year of the Supremes, most of all, you know, well, outside
3: it was, of the beat. I think the, the thing that you can really differentiate, the one thing is the lyrics in rock, which, which actually this month is the month that folk rock really exploded in a sense. Because you had, well, Satisfaction, which had anti-advertising lyrics, you know, inspired by Dylan, <laughs> top of the charts all month. Mr. Tambourine Man still hovering in the top five. And then suddenly he had Eve of Destruction leaked like around July 20th. Help comes out July 19th, which was very introspective. Dylan, like Rolling Stone, comes out the 20th. Love and Spoonful comes out that same day. Do You Believe in Magic? Newport, July 25th. I think the lyrics is the one thing that in rock and roll, I mean, the people that Dylan had been doing great lyrics, but all acoustic in his folk little area you know in 64 so 65 seemed like especially with like eve of destruction number one the first time Mm. al you know steve correct me if i'm wrong is that the first time in the pop charts that kind of top i guess blowing in the wind was a top hit too but was that different like the lyrics being being at the top of the teenage pop charts the uh, folk rock kind of lyrics
1: um i don't think it was the first I, i i i'm not uh, I, I'm just working from memory, but I don't think it was the first time. But let me—I, you know what? I have a book in my lap that will probably tell me the answer. So give me a few minutes, and I will—I will look and see. Um,
2: right. I don't think "Blowing the Wind" got to number one. Uh, it was a top five, but I don't think it got num- got to number one. But uh, uh, I, I think Eve of Destruction was the, the first record of that type of what they called protest music that uh, that actually did did reach number one on the, uh, you know, the national pop charts.
3: Maybe. So maybe. Yeah, because I, when I was writing the book, it's hard to say 64. What was really different? So I was just wondering maybe the lyrics was the most different thing in 65 as opposed to, because musically, maybe there wasn't, a, you know, there's a lot of overlap with 64, but you guys would know better than me. Though, for sure. Now, <laughs> now you
2: have to, one thing you have to remember, I mean, I, we should add that Andrew, and that's, this is one of the amazing things about his book. Andrew is not one of us, uh, us dinosaurs. Uh, Andrew, <laughs> Andrew, no, Andrew drew his like inspiration. Dinosaurs. Drew, Andrew drew his inspiration for the book. Because of his father's in, um, enthusiasm for 1965 and, and the music of '65, uh, and he did an amazing amount of research. I know how tough that is, uh, having mm. done you know my own book, but uh, he really kind of gets "quote unquote" the uh, the you know, the feel of 1965 but i think you know for like for those of us who actually did go through the year you know we couldn't really sense at the in real time the you know you know how much of an advance there was but it's like as i said it, it it seemed as if every day there was some new great record for instance i have in my hand the uh, biggest top 40 radio station in New York er, in, in the country by 1965, by the middle of 65 was WABC in New York. This mm-hmm. was their top 10 for this very week, 50 years ago. At uh, number 10 is I'm a happy man by the jive five, uh, actually a uh, kind of a, uh, a, a, a doo-wop group from the late fifties and early sixties with kind of an updated sound for that time. Uh, number nine is What's New Pussycat, Burt Backrack and Hal David's song, uh, the title song from the movie by Tom Jones, who, even though he's considered, you know, a pop artist, was at that point considered to be part of the, of the British invasion. Uh, number eight is For Your Love by the Yardbirds, which was their breakthrough hit uh, written by Grave Goldman. If this was the record that caused Eric Clapton to leave the Yardbirds, Uh, And to be replaced by Jeff Beck, and the Yardbirds are, you know, obviously have been a favorite uh, of uh, of serious rock fans all along. Uh, Number seven is "Wooly Bully" by Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs, a great example of uh, Tex-Mex music, a little bit of a novelty, but still great, great dance record. Number six was "Yes I'm Ready" by Barbara Mason, one-hit wonder, but a great R&B ballad. Uh, five is Karamea by Jay and the Americans uh, with uh, the lead singer of Jay and the Americans was uh, Jay Black, who has an operatic voice and mm. uh, go to YouTube and look up the performance of this song on Shindig. Actually, it's on my on my page from a couple of weeks ago, but uh, it's an incredible incredible performance. Uh, number four is Mr. Tambourine man by the birds the, 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 the record that in effect gave birth to um, uh, to folk rock. Three is I'm Henry the eighth I am by Herman's Hermits uh, which, which is actually an old uh, British music hall song that Joe Brown used to perform and uh, at that point Herman's Hermits were extremely popular. Uh, there was, they had a, you know, a big boom that spring, as did Freddie and the Dreamers, uh, as part of the uh, the British invasion. Uh, number two is these, in the opinion of a lot of people, the record of the summer of '65. I can't get no satisfaction. The record that really launched the Rolling Stones to the runner-up position among really the world's. Uh, rock groups, and number one is a cl- is a certified Motown classic, written and produced by Holland Dozier and Holland. Uh, I can't help myself by the Four Tops. So that's the top ten from fifty years ago this week, as you know, from WABC in New York on their uh, their All American survey, and that's uh, courtesy of uh, Alan Sniffen's um, uh, New York radio message board.
1: I have the if you're, anybody's interested, I have the mm-hmm. top top ten billboard, which is a slightly different Right but not entirely. Um it's got several of the, the songs including uh Satisfaction and I Can't Help Myself. Um I'll run it I'll run it down really quickly. Uh, ten is uh Jackie DeShannon, What the World Now Is Love. Nine is Just yes, I'm Ready, Barbara Mason. Eight is Crying in the Chapel by Elvis. Seven is Seventh Son by Johnny Rivers. Six is For Your Love. Five is Wonderful World. Uh, four is Woolly Bully. Three is Her- Mr. Tambourine Man. Two is Satisfaction. And one is Can't Help Myself. So it's slightly different. But uh, one thing that uh, when you mentioned Karamiya, Al, do you remember uh, hearing? I remember hearing Dan Ingram play Karamiya on WABC and stretching out Jay Black's uh, um
2: Oh that last yes. that last <laughs> note. Yeah. Yes, yep. indeed.
1: <laughs> that was just hilarious. I mean, he stretched it must have stretched it out for a minute. It was great. Yeah. It was funny. <laughs> anyway, sorry to uh, but I mean, you know, it's it's so it's so cool to to go back and and I mean, you know, I I don't know about you guys, but I mean, I I I I've and I've said this before that the music of today just does not compare to the music of of back then, whether you want to talk about 64, 65, you know, 66, there's just no, there's just no comparison as far as Well,
2: remember that it's a completely different atmosphere now. It's a completely different music business. Also, the music isn't being directed at at dinosaurs like us. It's being, you know, as it's always been, it's being marketed toward teenagers, 20-somethings, you know, the quote unquote desired demographic, mm-hmm. you know, so, mm-hmm. so there's no, there's no way that we can really, um, you know, ha- get, you know, get much of a feeling for what's out there now, just as our parents couldn't understand what, uh, this, uh, you know, I can't get no satisfaction. What are all those dirty lyrics about, uh, trying to get, make some girl tell me, you know, whatever, you know, and, uh, you know, it's always been pretty much like that.
3: I, I, was, I was wondering if one difference from today was, I wonder if it was, uh, did you guys experience this at the time? In retrospect, it seemed like there were so many social changes, you know, the civil rights, the war, anti-war movement, the pill, psychedelics, all kind of converging, even if they weren't explicitly in the lyrics or anything, seemed like that there was a spirit that the music was sort of channeling, which I don't think today... Maybe gay rights, maybe civil rights, a little bit, but I don't. Doesn't seem like there's any kind of equivalent social transformation that's that's taken music to a higher level in a sense these days. And so it seems a little bit more boring in a sense these days. You
2: know, uh, right. well good. a record like Eve of Destruction* never would have gotten played in this in in today's atmosphere because it would have been felt, oh no, you can't, uh, you know, this is too controversial. And so it never would have even made, uh, well, I should, shouldn't say made air because now there's all these other alternatives.
0: Yeah. Um, I just want to I just want to say a few things about radio in general. Please. I mean, it's very easy to, to look back and say those were the golden days, and believe me, I feel the same way as you guys. I think the mm-hmm. '60s was such a golden era, and for me, I love the '70s too. That's really more my decade even more so than the 60s. But believe me, I treasure the 60s and appreciate the 60s more now than I ever have. But radio is such a different animal now because everything is so specialized. And there is music, I think, that can appeal to people that grew up in the 60s and 70s that's being played now. It's just not, from my taste, what's being played on the chr contemporary hit radio Mm -hmm. today i think that that to me is garbage and that's just my own personal opinion i don't expect everyone else to agree but you know it's just that's what we grew up with it was a time of incredible transformation and the music really was powerful it was at a time i think when top 40 was was really blossoming as a format and music was so eclectic and it reflected that in in the top 40 of the time And that affected my musical taste more than anything else. The fact that you could hear a pop record, a rock record, a novelty record, a country record, an R&B record, all that on the same station. You could hear the Beatles and then Lorne Green doing Ringo and then... (laughs) Mm-hmm. Uh, Dean Martin with Everybody Loves Somebody and right. then Motown, a Motown song, and then Roger Miller with Dang Me. You know, mm-hmm. it's all on the same station. And that's something that's missing because you don't have that eclecticism on one format of radio unless it's a non-commercial station. Right. So that affects the way that people are being brought up in our culture today. You have to listen to a specialized format to find the music that really appeals to you And that's if you want to go through all the trouble of hunting it down yourself. Young people, a lot of people today don't necessarily listen to a radio station. They try to find the music that they like just by going on the Internet or or hearing what their friends are saying or file sharing and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So radio, I don't think, is the presence that it used to be. And I think it's a really sad thing. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm babbling on here. That we don't have <laughs> we we don't have the unified culture that we once did when we had fewer radio stations with bigger audiences all hearing the same thing. So it's easier to relate to that time when so many people all loved the same music, or or we all shared similar tastes, more similar tastes probably than more than now. So that's a huge difference that radio plays such a big difference between the way it was then and the way it is now. Mm -hmm. Our culture is very different. It's a completely different landscape. And I want to be fair to today's music because there is a lot of good stuff that's coming out these days, but less people are hearing it because it's reaching smaller audiences because the the formats are, are more specialized. Is that but, for the um,
3: advertisers? Did they they figure they could make more money like Maro casting and they could charge advertisers more? Is that why it changed the radio? Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, yeah. yeah. The,
0: the advertisers want to know their demographic audience, and the music that they program is supposed to reflect what they think is their demographic audience. So, as long as they're appealing to that audience, then they'll get advertising. So, so advertising
3: um, yeah. diminished music for everyone in a way, in a strange way.
0: Well, there always was advertising to begin with. Listen to Top Forty Radio back then, my God! Oh, my you know how goodness. many commercials oh, were, were on in one hour? There were there were commercials after
2: every song.
3: Oh yeah, yeah, I just meant that. I guess for the for our for them chasing the advertising dollar, that's what broke us into smaller niche audiences. It doesn't get the eclectic, big 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 stations like you were talking about before. You know, but uh,
0: mm. it's true. But anyway, I can pick probably any. Any week in from 1964 through 69, if we're talking the 60s, any week look at the top 10 and go, oh my God, Yeah, look at all exactly. those songs, and mm-hmm. and think that just about every single one of them is great. So, um, you know, getting back to what I was saying before, I want to just compare 64 to 65 as years, because I know, Steve, you said there's nothing that can compare to 1964 for you, mm-hmm. certainly as a Beatle fan, but other than the lyric changes and everything else that you mentioned why wouldn't you think 1964 was just as revolutionary because we look the biggest change in 64 was the beatles and the british invasion you know really? by far that really affected so much why why wouldn't you put that in the same category as 65
1: well i didn't uh, I, I, uh,
0: now you're cor- i'm saying this to all of you i'm saying <laughs> oh, this to all okay. of you not just you steve
1: i did say a, a few weeks ago that i thought if I had to pin down a year, 64 was the year because of, because basically of the Beatles, but there were so many great things happening, you know, year by year by year. I mean, you know, I mean, it was just one thing after another, one surprise after another, uh, you know, um, you had all the great stuff happening this year. Um, uh, um, you had the who starting coming in. I mean, you had all the beetle things that, that happened in 65, um, you know, um, but i mean there were just there were just things from year to year going on and it was you know we never knew what was going to come down and everything that was coming down was exploding against the establishment because the establishment didn't know what the hell was going on with the kids so, you know today's a, today's a little different because the establishment and and the youth culture have intertwined so much more than they did back then you know there were things were separated back then very much uh, and adults really looked down on you know, what kids were doing so you know i think that things are a, a lot different today than they are than they were back then but there were just so many great things happening from week to week and you had you know you had the the, the great radio stations the radio culture had a lot to do with it because radio culture, as you said, is a lot different now, uh, now than it is then. There was there. I think there's actually more influence in radio back then. Ken, uh, I, I you probably might. I don't know if you're going to agree with that or not, but I mean, I think the historically, if you look back at history, I think uh, when you had some of the great DJs that we had, you know, they, oh yeah, they, um, they nailed it as far as, you know. Uh, Leading the pack as far as what was going on, you know, so um, you don't see many, you don't see DJs doing that. I mean, you have, you know, you have DJs like on Sirius and stuff doing, you know, uh, playing music, but there certainly isn't the, the power and the influence that we had back in the 60s at all.
0: Um, oh, I totally, I totally agree with you there. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you like the top 40 format, that, that period of the 60s and 70s, and I can't really relate to the 50s there. I love the 50s music. I don't really know radio from the 50s mm. that well. Um, but, yeah, the DJs mattered. People went to concerts in part to see their DJ introducing sure. some of the acts that were on stage. And that, you know, as far as DJs that actually played music, you don't really have that now. On, on most radio stations, you have a morning team that's like right. a comedy team, and that's about mm-hmm. it for personality. Most personality yeah. is on talk radio. It's on talk radio now. Right. So um, I'm not saying there aren't some select examples in the country, but um, that was at a time when personality mattered and the way you delivered and talked up a song. And you know certain jocks had their own style that made them their own, whereas gradually radio became less personality-driven for music stations, and they cared more about playing music and have less talk.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, um, yeah, I definitely agree with you on that, Steve. The DJs, certainly, you know, I can only talk about New York, because that's what I listen to, but the DJs that I grew up with on WABC in the 60s and 70s were the greatest to me. <laughs> They're my heroes, you mm-hmm. know? So, um, yeah, I totally agree.
1: But the the music, the mu- getting back to the music of 65, I mean, we had such a... Um and upswelling of of you know incredible things going on. The number one song on the first day of January was "I Feel Fine," believe it or not. And the number one song the last week of December was "Over and Over" by the Dave Clark Five, which actually "Over and Over" is probably a bad example of you know, influential songs.
3: Mm, but yeah. I
1: mean, but, but there are, there are so many, I mean, uh,
3: the ones on either side, I think we can work it out and sound of silence. We're on either side of over and over. Yes. I think Those are g- going towards probably wouldn't sound like you're going, you're heading towards, you know, with the yeah. contrasting the beginning yeah. and the end of the year.
1: Well, that's mm-hmm. a, That same, that same week at the end of December, you also had in the top 10, let's hang on by the four seasons. England swings, which I, which uh, you know, you'd have to, you'd have to. Uh, talking about uh, eclecticism, I can never go home anymore by the Shangri-Las, which I absolutely adore. Uh, you know, I mean that, uh, and and yeah, we can work it out was number eleven that week. So you had, you know, you had all sorts of things going on. I mean, you had the, the, the just talk about the Shangri-Las. I mean, they were, you know, they had a hell of an influence on on. Not only on guys, but <laughs> on on pop culture. I mean, I remember adoring them back in the in the sixties. Um, uh, I won't, Let's not even go there. I mean, they were they were fantastic. They really were. That music is just is just uh, something else. And there were just so many. There were so many good things happening in music that year. I mean, it was, it was it was great stuff. It, it's hard to nail down one thing. You know,
3: you can almost show the Beatles their number one singles shows like a really interesting arc because it yes. goes, I feel fine eight days a week, yeah. then suddenly ticket to ride help gets darker than yesterday, pretty heavy. And then we can work it out. It kind of, uh, they, they kind of definitely had a, a arc going that year, a growth progression. Right. Pretty- mm-hmm. they,
1: were, they were getting a lot more serious than 65. Uh, they weren't the, they, they were still the fab four. Um, I mean, they, that wouldn't leave until, you know start fading out until next year until 66 but they were they were getting a lot more serious it was you know it wasn't i want to hold your hand anymore
2: so and they were there was there even as big as herman's hermits were in that spring and summer as big as uh freddie and the dreamers were for a short time in that that spring as big as satisfaction and the last time and get off of my cloud were for the, for the, for the Rolling Stones. There was never a doubt at any point in that year who the biggest group in the pop world was, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, I mean, the, the Shea stadium, the, the first concert at Shea stadium sold out via word of mouth. You know, those posters that you've seen that are out there with Sid Bernstein presents those are fakes. There were they're actually, in fact, Dave Schwenson, uh, who we're hoping to get on the on the show very soon, um, mm-hmm. has pointed that out that those those po- those posters didn't exist until afterward. That because because uh, Brian had uh, Brian Epstein had pretty much stipulated that there'd be no overt promotion for that concert at Shea Stadium. So it basically sold out through word of mouth and uh, top 40 radio.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And well, uh, top 40, uh, 40 radio
0: was top 40 radio was was so, so huge. I mean, just a exactly. mention of that on a station like W.A.B.C. and, you know, it's going to sell out quickly.
2: I- Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. But uh, but also, but if it had, if it had been any other group, uh, there were no guarantees that a, sh- a show like that would have sold out,
1: mm-hmm.
2: especially without any overt, uh, you know, uh, any overt promotion. But that's how huge the Beatles were, and and but then the next year they that,
3: didn't sell out, right? They it, it, it they was, didn't like, sell out. Was their pinnacle. Yeah, the, Maybe
2: sixty six, right? That and and also, you know, a lot of the you know the original girl fans were by that time three years older, and were, you know, had kind of moved on from wanting to go to, you know, go to shows and scream and leave wet seats <laughs> and all that sort of stuff, <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> You know, it was, uh, but there was, you know, they, in fact, 1965, in in 1965, the Beatles were never again as universally popular as they were in 1965. And there was never a moment's doubt uh, that they were the biggest pop act in the world. You know, the following year, all the the controversies began and then the drug revelations and things like that. Uh, and even some fan resistance to Revolver and Sergeant Pepper, some of, the, you know, some of the younger fans, as Candy Leonard has gone into in her book, uh, Beatleness. Uh, but in 65, they were still absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, the biggest pop act in the world.
0: See, that's one thing I would question you on, Al, because, yeah, I I know they sold out Shea, they sold out everywhere in 65. 66 was a different story, which is hard for me to admit, considering Mm -hmm. these are the Beatles we're talking about, but also the Beatles being bigger than Jesus, quote, had a lot to do with uh, loss of sales, concert ticket sales. Um, Mm -hmm. But still, if you look at the charts from year to year, every Beatles album just about went to number one. You know, they still had number one singles. So it's not like I would say that they really took a dive in any way after 65.
2: Well, only uh, when I'm talking about universal popularity, you know, because Mm. in 66, you know, you had uh, you had all especially that, you know, what I call the summer in hell, you know, from the uh, from the butcher cover to the Jesus controversy to Manila uh, and and all the rest of us. I'm sorry. Oh, they had, didn't They um, had death threats in Japan, too, for playing. Right. Yeah, the... exactly. So, uh, so, you know, and, and also there was, there was some resistance by some of the younger fans who were not really that musically sophisticated to the advances in Rubber Soul and especially Revolver and then Sgt. Pepper. So, right. uh, you know, so they never were, again, as universally popular as they were in 1965 the monkeys came
3: in right the monkeys came in in 66 in 66
2: yeah and with, with and a fans. lot of the yeah a lot of those younger uh girl fans particularly kind of uh took the monkeys to their uh uh to their hearts because they were you know their music was more accessible to them than tomorrow never knows
3: mm-hmm. oh that 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 just Reminded me of another, when you, Ken, you were mentioning how is 65, I really, how good, 64 was just as, you know, uh, revolutionary, which on some level I obviously totally agree with. I would say one other difference might be 65 was when the British art school rockers like the Kinks and the, well, I don't know if the Yardbirds per se were an art school, but they started playing, trying to imitate a sitar with the, you know, uh, the, the fuzz pedal. You know, the, the mm-hmm. beginnings of Psychedelia, where they started, they, they had mastered the blues and the rock forms in 64. And now they were trying, they were kind of using their artsy minds to, you know, get a start getting psychedelic, you know, the, the glimmers of it.
0: Right. Oh, there's, there's exactly. no doubt in my mind that there were, there, there were so many changes being made in the music in terms of lyrics, in terms of the production, the instrumentation. 65 was an enormous year of advancement there. Uh, you know, the only thing I come back to as a question is, does that make it the best year? It might oh, be no. the most well, interesting I, year.
2: I mean, I, yeah. uh, I, I, you know, just have a personal preference for 1965. I think there were, you know, just for me, there were more great records that uh, that I particularly liked. You know, but I'm, you know, I'm not saying that it's a be all and end all, but uh, that 1965 is the greatest year, but uh, I would put it up against, uh, you know, any, any other year in the 60s kind of record for record, because as I said, you you know, you could go to I read off that top 10 from this week, you could go to the top 10 or top 20. Uh, on almost any top 40 radio station or the national charts for virtually any week that year. And you'll see just the, the number of what we would now consider classic records is, mm. is, is mind-boggling, absolutely mm-hmm. mind-boggling. Uh, but the difference between, you, you, you've brought up a couple of times the difference between 64 and 65, just that 64 was a transitional year. Where, but 65 is really where, as I mentioned before, those bands that kind of began to formulate in the wake of the Beatles' first impact uh, in America really kind of came to the fore in 65, uh, and that includes the Birds, as a matter of fact. And then you, you know, you you uh, uh, you bring Dylan's um, entrance into the rock arena. Uh, in in there as well, uh, along with the you know there uh, obviously Motown Motown's kind of golden era you could you know say began either in '63 or '64, but in, but it was in '65 that it really went into hybrid drive. So right. and and the and the first the first major hits out of stacks from Otis Redding, from uh, uh, Wilson Pickett, even though he was technically not on Stacks, uh, but recorded there. Uh, and um, uh, so much more that went into, you know, what I call this the musical stew that was 1965. Right. And
3: a lot of great albums, too. In a way, it was mm-hmm. the beginning of the album era with Dylan's two mm-hmm. albums that year and Rubber Soul and The Who's album, and Bird's album the really, uh, the album and and as a ma- really kicked in. Mm-hmm.
2: And as a matter of fact, uh we're recording this j- the day after the Grateful Dead played their what they say is their final concert at Soldier Field in Chicago, and as uh Andrew points out in, in his book, uh it was 50 years ago uh that the Grateful Dead formed in uh, uh in San Francisco. Actually, act- so
1: that was- actually Palo Alto to get technically. Okay.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, um, and and some of the other personalities who would uh who would emerge from the San Francisco scene also were beginning to get involved. Uh, Grace Slick uh was the lead singer with a group called The Great Society that was playing the ballrooms and such in, in San Francisco at that point. So uh, so, yeah, as Andrew said, kind of the album rock era uh, was both on the surface and below was really beginning in 1865. So uh, so, you know, whereas 64 was this great transitional year, uh, 65 is where so much of the music began to really emerge. Mm. Right.
0: Okay. How would you compare this to, say, um, I don't want to exclude 1966, but 1967 is looked upon, certainly in radio, as the important year when when rock music was really changing and albums became the art form. And you had, you know, the classic albums like Sgt. Pepper and Surrealistic Pillow and Jimi Hendrix's first album and The Doors. You know, for for classic rock radio, they rarely ever play anything pre-1967 unless there's a specific reason behind it. But as far as music that relates to what's going on today in classic rock radio, it seems to start in
3: 1967. Mm-hmm. That, that's yeah, actually, and, and well, that that was no, the thing ahead. that I love about '65 is because, in a way, it it has its feet in both camps because a lot of the music sounds like what you call oldies music today, you know, like, a, but then you have like with the yard birds and all that, that the beginning of that classic rock sound. So I, it, that's what always fascinated me with the year was that it was sort of the year that the classic 67 sound started kind of ever- emerging from the, the era of like, you were mentioning Jay and the Americans and the Vogues mm-hmm. and the four seasons and everything. It's like an overlap of those two things, which I really enjoy.
1: I think, I think mm-hmm. there there were groups though, from pre 67 that got a lot of attention that, um, you know uh, Simon, the Beatles, of course Simon and Garfunkel, you know uh, the Birds, obviously. So I think I think there were a number of pre sixty seven groups. Paul Revere and the Raiders are another one. So I mean there's a uh, and Good Vibrations came out in sixty six. So you know there was a lot of good music in sixty six. The thing about sixty six though is that it took it it took what had been you know had already happened in 64 and 65 and just really built on on what had already come and i think if you're going to characterize 66 it's it's really the progression year i mean an incredible progression i mean everybody mm-hmm. evolved like crazy in 66 they didn't really i think that's what the problem if there's a you know if you want to say something about 65 things were still just getting started in '65, where in '66 in everything just took off, you know. Right. right. There were just...
2: 60, in '66. You've got, you know, you, you've got the Mamas and Papas. If you can believe your eyes and ears, uh, you've got Dylan's Blonde on Blonde. You've got the Beach Boys, Pet Sounds. You've got the first Rascals album. You've got Revolver. Mm-hmm. Just those five alone. After right. Yes, thank you. Aftermath. Right.
3: Blonde on Blonde. So.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And so when you have just just a, a you know, just a few classic albums of uh, of that ilk, along with, you know, many others, it's, uh, you know, it's it, it's it was a monumental, uh, monumental year. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, like I said, I mean, you could put a postage stamp over uh, 65 and 66 in terms of the quality of the music. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how that's how close it is. You know, as I said, I just happen to have a personal preference for 65. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, there's uh, I'm just running down
1: a list here of some of the records of 65. And I mean, there are so many deep cuts that are so that were so much fun to listen to. The Jolly Green Giant is is one. right? Um, the Kingsman. The Kingsman. Yeah, that's another one. Um, I'm just run, I'm just running down a list here. Um, Let's Lock the Door. That's another great. Jay, the American song. Have you heard? Have you have you seen Jay uh,
2: perform lately, um, Al? I haven't myself because he mostly he's kind of semi-retired now, mm-hmm. and he mainly um, he mainly performs either out on Long Island mm-hmm. uh, in Ken, Ken's old stomping grounds, uh, mm-hmm. or in Florida, you know, for the retirees. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's from all reports, he still has. That you know, near operatic voice. Amazing. Yeah, I,
0: I've seen him. I've seen him a number of times actually. He yeah, still sounds great. He really does. Yeah. I don't think he holds on to that that long note in Karameo like he used to. But right. uh, no. He could still he could still sing great for a full hour. And uh, no, his voice is still in great shape.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some somebody else to, to mention is Chad and Jeremy, who do still sound absolutely freaking fantastic i mean yeah, that that is i had i admit i have not seen them i di, have not seen them recently i did see them a while back and they just blew me over how good they sounded um it's it's amazing and uh yeah i you know i i was i was very lucky to talk to uh to uh Chat Stewart uh, about a year ago, and he, it was fantastic talking to them. One of my favorite moments is that Dick Van Dyke show. I love that Dick Van Dyke show. Sure, um, <laughs> that is one of, a, a show I could watch over and over and over again. And of course, it's all parallel. It's all Beatles parallel in there. So um, sure, of course. But uh, I yes. mean, there's there's just so many. Oh God, those uh, you know when you talk about Unit Four Plus Two. Concrete and Clay, even even Freddie and the Dreamers. For I, you know, I thought uh, I I've seen going through Billboard uh, archives, uh, Billboard ads from '65, and I'd forgotten that Freddie and the Dreamers actually got
2: launched in '65, not in
1: '64. Well,
2: it, here they had their you know they their 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 boom is in '65, but for instance, I'm telling you now, which was a, their number one record in in the US in the spring of 65 actually had been a number 2 single in England in the fall of 63 and a record called She Loves You kept them out of the number 1 spot in, mm-hmm. in, in on the English charts so they... and and you were made for me the follow up was also from that same from that same time
1: do you know they did it they did an album of disney covers Fre- uh, freddie
2: drex yeah
1: <laughs> that's hilarious. that's amazing uh, uh, i i believe the album is is on cd for anybody interested but yeah they did an album of disney covers it's
3: is that after the beatles turned down a uh, jungle book didn't they base those vultures on the beatles in the jungle book but uh, john lennon
1: yeah i i, I would it. i would assume so yeah and that is indeed a true story that uh in case you know for anybody that hasn't heard that that is true that the uh the vultures were based on the Beatles. i couldn't believe that when i first heard it and it was like really and uh but uh actually was it was it a few uh i'm trying to remember um yeah several years ago they had a uh disneyland had a thing called america sings this is way way back it's gone it's long gone now but they had the vultures in america Um, things and uh, so anyway but
0: i just want to say um i've seen chad and jeremy many times and Mm -hmm. several years ago Mm -hmm. they reunited for the first time in a long time and they sound exactly the same as they did in the 60s -hmm. i mean it's Um, like time has stood still with chad and jeremy so Mm -hmm. if you ever get a chance Mm -hmm. they only do a few dates here and there but whenever they do perform go see them and there's one other band that we haven't mentioned. I'm sure there are others, but the zombies are a band that, mm-hmm. you know, they were ahead of their time really because they mixed rock with jazz elements. Yeah. And, exactly. uh, they are still going strong. They're still making new music. They're still touring and they're phenomenal. They really are. Anyone who gets a chance should see the zombies. Colin Blundstone, the lead singer sounds mm-hmm. phenomenal. You know, he's 70 years old now and he's got a voice of an angel rod arjun is still a tear right there on the keyboards so uh yeah
3: bobby fuller four i fought the law uh that was actually 66 go ahead that was funny when i was writing the book there are so many things that were like december 65 they were they say that some people say they're released some people say not so yeah i don't know who knows I guess
2: they may have been released in December but then they but they really really didn't become hits until maybe the late winter or early spring of sixty six.
1: There's a great clip of, of Bobby Fuller, Fuller on Hullabaloo that that I know is on YouTube that right. is well worth k is well worth catching. That is absolutely yeah. amazing. And since we're talking yeah. about sixty six music, another clip to To dig out on YouTube is the original music video for These Boots Are Made For Walking, which is right. absolutely a scream. Mm. But anyway.
0: Well, we've just about we – we've run out of time here, actually, because uh, I can't believe this hour has just flown by. It has. But, uh, Andrew, I want to thank you for, for being a great guest with us on the show. Um, once rad. again – um, the name of your book is called 1965, The Most Revolutionary Year in Music. You also wrote a book on the solo Beatles, which we didn't mention before, which is called Still the Greatest, The Essential Songs of the Beatles' Solo Careers. Maybe we'll have you on
3: to talk about that. Oh, i love to any time. The, there's websites for both books, 1965book.com and solobeatles.com.
1: You also did a uh, uh, Where's Waldo uh, Beatle book, didn't you?
3: Yeah, it's, uh, it's Where... That one. The other books are all text, but there's a book called "Where's Ringo?" That's got a, uh, 20 illustrations where you have to find Ringo and all these other Beatles-related pop culture things. And there we then, go. Yeah, uh, you know, I wrote the I wrote the accompanying text, and some great artists did all the pictures.
1: Mm. Yes, I've seen that book. That's a wonder, that's a wonderful book. It's a it's a great book for a gift. So,
3: so Andrew, thanks
0: so much for joining us. Uh, I just want to mention, uh, if you can, please check out my own website, which is KenMichaelsRadio.com. There's a couple of new interviews that are on there. One is with Adam Ippolito, the keyboardist from Elephant's Memory. And we were mentioning Dave Schwenson before, who we're we're hoping to have on the show. He's got a new book out, The Beatles at Shea Stadium. So new interviews there on my website, KenMichaelsRadio.com.
2: I probably should put in a plug, since we've been discussing 1965, that what I do is each day I put in one of the 365 reasons why 1965 is the greatest year in the history of rock and roll uh, on my Facebook page, which is under Al Sussman, or you can access it on Twitter uh, at Asus49.
0: You actually put one song in there, Al, that I was very pleased that you posted. Which that one? being of course the clapping song from Shirley yeah. Ellis <laughs> hey hey 369 the goose drank wine yeah. where do you find <laughs> like that come on <laughs> the monkey chew tobacco i'm well, trying to
2: cover the whole spectrum
0: <laughs> that's right hey i said novelty records too they were a big Absolutely. part of the 60s yeah. Soupy. and that's right the mouse right? that was 65 right? uh april yeah, Oh yeah, that's right. Hey, he was yes. on with the Beatles, at yeah, Sullivan. That's that's true. Yeah. And if people want to get in touch with you, Steve, they could do so how?
1: Uh, Beatles Examiner at Gmail dot com. Uh, and I'm also I have uh, my own personal Facebook page, and I also hang around the Beatles news and commentary group pages, group page, and I hang around a lot of places. But those are the best places to find me. You can always uh, uh, message me. Um, either by email or uh, on p.m. on Facebook and I'll be glad to reply
0: okay and if you want to get in touch with all of us at the show our email address is thingswe said today show at gmail.com all right on behalf of Steve Marinucci, Al Sussman in absentia Alan Kozen and Andrew Grant Jackson this is Ken Michaels saying thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time